we have a pretty interesting episode this week, don't we, Marius? I agree with you, we do. This is, uh, well, it's not the first time we're having a guest on the show. It's the second time, but it's the first time we're having a developer on the show. And we're joined today by Paul Matthijs of Hedge. And uh, if you remember, we talked about the app a few episodes ago. It's a, it's a great utility that lets you offload your footage from your camera or or any kind of footage, really, or, or data to several destinations at the same time. So it's a really, really useful tool for every photographer out there. You know, you go out, do, do a shoot, and you have usually tons of SD cards and just lots of data to keep track of. So this, is, this really comes in handy. Uh, so welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks. Happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. So yeah, I mean, we uh, we basically talked a little bit about uh, Hedge shortly after I discovered it, and um, I've been using it ever since. Um, I, I bought a license for the agency, and we ended up all um, getting licenses that we've been using. And it's it's been really remarkable um, just how reliable it's been and how much additional peace of mind there is knowing that um, the algorithm that's moving your files is doing so with integrity protection and with, you know, such a nice interface. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to to take a step back and ask you, Paul, like, how do you describe Hedge to people? Like, what's your elevator pitch for the app? Because we're looking at it from a photographer's perspective. So we have certain things that we're using it for. But do you like, how, how do you introduce people to it? Well, the, the main thing is safety for us. Um, okay. If you copy files with the finder, you don't know if your copy is exactly right. And when you're copying Word documents or audio files, that's not a problem. But video files and photos need to be in perfect order. So Hedge makes sure the copy is perfect. And that's how we started out building Hedge. And then uh, within a few versions, we stumbled upon a new technique and we created the really fast engine that Hedge now offers. So nowadays, it's a combination of the safety that Hedge offers with the incredible speed. That's what most people think is most important, the speed. But we think the safety feature is the, is the underlying benefit. Yeah, it's definitely really important. Yeah, what I like about the speed aspect of it is that it's actually um, one of the release notes was was pointing out that it's optimized for moving large numbers of files, which is exactly you know in the case of moving footage around, that's certainly um, what happens. Uh, we we were offloading a bunch of 4K footage, and that usually takes quite a while. So knowing that it's going as quickly as possible while also being protected is uh, it just offers a level of peace of mind, which to me is is great, but. Um, I know that when you're trying to um, market a product, it can be a little bit difficult to uh, just explain to people why they would want to use it. Because I know a lot of um, colleagues and production friends are just used to using the Finder. And so um, I I'm wondering, like, do you, do you find that it's a struggle to convince people to switch away from Finder just because it's ubiquitous, not because it's better? I mean, I think on paper, it's clear that Hedge offers an advantage, but do you find that there's resistance to people adopting a third-party tool for such a crucial part of their workflow? Oh, yeah, it is It is a problem, but it's only a problem with people um, who haven't encountered any problems. So right. for most people, once we tell them why you need verification, it's an eye-opener. And it's like, I didn't know I needed it, but once now I know I need it, I'm never going back. 
So it's kind of like with backups, right? You don't need one until you do. Yeah. And you didn't want to find out. You really didn't want to find out. And it's the same thing with the 4K stuff you mentioned. Most people think, oh man, I need speed offloading. It's going to take, it's going to save me half an hour today or something. But if you lose that footage, it's going to take you hours to redo the whole day. So it's a bit of a short-term versus long-term risk that people need to be aware of. And that can be a pretty hard sell indeed. Yeah, and it's also a matter of having a safety net, right? Because uh, it just takes one failure to really hurt your business. If you're if you're a working professional and you lose some critical data, then that that's a, a really huge problem. So that it that by itself in my book is a perfectly good reason to to use Hatch. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just a the reason I asked the question is because I know that when I was introducing it to my colleagues, it was you know that was the first question like why would we use this instead of Finder, right? Like what what is the concrete advantage here? And after I you know laid it out as okay, it's some security, it's quick, it's peace of mind, it's blah blah blah. Then they start to come around, but there's still just this level of resistance because it's like yeah, you you're making these these claims, but do we do we trust that this is actually the case? Like Finder may not have fancy features, but at least it's built into the operating system. You know, it's supposed to be um, as reliable as as it gets, and it's it's difficult I think for some. Um, folks who don't really understand how the the mechanism works under the hood right. um, to, to just grasp how much of an advantage it can be. So I, I feel for you guys there trying to communicate that. Um, but I think the end result is terrific. And the fact that the interface is so beautiful really helps. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Although I'm curious about something, Paul. So, uh, have you ever felt that Hatch's uh, simplicity when it comes to its user interface kind of uh, undermines a little bit uh, the importance of using the app because uh, this app is incredibly sophisticated, you know, under the hood, the way in the way it handles data and the way it protects it. But none of that is shown to the user. The user only sees a really simple dialogue where you just grab your source, grab your destination, and off you go. The the, the transfer is pretty seamless as far as the user is concerned, and that's great. That's a great feature, and it's going to get a lot of people. Uh, it's going to get them to keep using the app because it's just a pleasure to use. But uh, I'm worried about what, what Marius was saying, that it kind of doesn't let you see just how much work is behind all of that. Yeah, well, we did that on purpose. Um, I totally agree with you. Um, we don't show how hard the process is for doing for you under the hood. Um, but what we saw, we came from a, a film background and... In the United States, offloading is done by DITs, but in Europe, you see a lot of second assistants doing it. Right. And they just don't have the knowledge uh, of a professional DIT. Right. And they have other jobs to do as well. So we decided let's give those people a program that's so easy to use that there's no real reason not using it. Yeah. Yeah. And we think in the end, that is more. it's more important to... Uh, remove to keep people from getting headaches because they have to do more stuff than to showing how really important stuff you're doing. And to be fair, you guys did build in the scripting capabilities, which are 
<clears throat> accessible in the uh, in the preferences. So that's uh, basically it's a way to react to certain events and execute an Apple script um, in in response to those events. So I, you know the the power that's under the hood. Some of it is also uh, made manifest in terms of um, like flexible workflows and customizable workflows that you can make based on these scripts, uh, so that specific drives being connected can trigger certain events and things like that. Which which I understand. Um, I think this is actually a really good way of doing it because it's like, if you're not a power user, if you're just the person who cares about basic, you know, footage offloading, you have this beautiful, very straightforward interface that allows you to accomplish your task and then you're, you're, you're done basically. Um, but if you have a more involved workflow or if you want to customize the way this all functions for your particular needs, um, then you also have that power there. So I, I really like the way that you guys balanced it. I think having it um, as a scripting component makes a lot of sense because if you're the kind of person who needs that extra functionality, chances are you already have a pretty good handle on um, Apple scripting or you can pick it up because it's really not that complicated. Yeah, exactly. We thought about building in proxies and transcoding and audio sync or export to uh, Premiere or Lightroom. Yeah. Um, but that's that's like reinventing the wheel. And right. uh, why should we push you towards using our app for creating transcodes or whatever you need instead of using that software you already know and have bought probably? And with the scripts, you can connect most apps that live on your uh, Mac. So it's it's kind of an integration and it's very powerful, but it's it's pro too. So it's a steep learning curve if you want to go there. Yeah, but you, you bring up an interesting point about um, the, the scope of the app because I, I think I, I agree with you in the sense that having... Um, having it do multiple tasks within your workflow, like transcoding, like audio syncing, um, is probably just adding more complexity that is not necessarily adding value, especially because like you said, chances are if you need that stuff, you've already got another dedicated tool. Um, but we were talking about this over email and, and Alvaro and I were, were discussing it in, in Slack. Um, there are a few, I, I guess, expansions to the functionality that we might like to see, which includes having... Um, multiple subfolder uh, access from both sources and destinations, um, which, I mean, the way you described it to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, you you kind of envision Hedge as a tool for doing that first movement of files. Um, you're not really interested in having it facilitate a more granular approach to moving files around. But what I've found in my own usage is that... Um, the the experience of using Hedge and the um, peace of mind has kind of led me to want to use it for file transfer tasks that aren't just offloading footage. In other words, I was, so for example, my Lightroom catalog, I recently migrated from place to place and I had to move some photos around and I wanted to do that with Hedge rather than Finder because I like the experience. Um, so I, I just wonder, like, how do you guys see that kind of expansion? Not Not in terms of like, having Hedge do more things um, within the video workflow, but having it be a more capable file management tool? Yeah, we've been thinking about it for a few months now. Um, Hedge is indeed envisioned as uh, the first step in a process, and it will stay that way. It's really meant for offloading disks or one folder on the disk yeah. and creating multiple backups. Um, we think media management isn't something that should be part of that first step, but it's needed later in the process. And essentially what you're doing is media management or file management. Yeah. 
So we are already looking into uh, the next iteration of Hedge or maybe a new app. And uh, media management is part of that probably. Yeah, we're looking into it. Yeah, it's just because like right now I don't I don't really have a tool that comes to mind that uh, that does what I want it to in terms of media management. I mean, we can we can talk about Adobe Bridge and things like that, but um ultimately having the the um the algorithm behind Hedge and the simplicity of its interface um uh, you know, it, I just I don't know. I think there's I think there's an opportunity there and I would certainly love to uh to see it and like you said whether it makes sense to bring it to Hedge itself or whether that's um you know, a different app or something like that. Uh you know, I I trust your judgment there. It's just something that Again, as I was using it, I was thinking, oh, man, I, I kind of wish it would do this extra thing for me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that that goes back to the intended use case, though. I mean, you described it as the first step in a process um, and that makes sense to me. But um, I, I almost wonder, like now that you've you know, you've released it, it's getting more and more users. Are you seeing use cases for it that you didn't expect? Oh, loads, loads. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, funny it's exactly what you described it's a lot of people use hedge for everything that has hedge wasn't built for uh, but because it's fast and reliable uh, people just like to use it for whatever they want to do yeah so we have uh, post-production houses that use it for moving uh, files between short and long-term storage stuff like that Yep. Right. And what we always keep in mind is that we want to build, if, we, if we're building a feature into the app, it should be usable by, by 95% of the user base. Right, yeah. And, and that really narrows down what we can build. It's, it's like a, a great lens. And I think that the implication of that is that Hedge, uh, as it is, will remain like it is, but we will diversify into specific use cases like uh, maybe a hedge for photography or right. a hedge for Lightroom or a hedge for whoever wants to use it. And right. that way it's a lot easier to reach that 95% goal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because if we would build in a, a specific uh, metadata uh, support that uh, users of certain cameras would use, then that's a very narrow use case. But if we make a version of Hedge just for that use case, then it would be very easy to build a perfect uh, experience. Right. So we're probably going to look into that. Right. For what it's worth, my, my experience using the app has sort of gone the opposite way. I started wanting it to do those media management tasks for me. But uh, since then, it's kind of evolved and I have adapted my workflow to use Hedge in the way it was originally intended for, which is that I now just grab my my SD card, empty it completely on my destination drives, then format it and go to a different one, right? So it's it's actually encouraged what I believe is a healthier, a, a more, yeah, a healthier workflow in my in my photography because before before I used Hedge, what I what I used to do is I would leave the pictures on my SD card essentially until it was completely full. I wouldn't delete the pictures unless I absolutely had to. But the peace of mind that Hedge gives me knowing that I have at least two copies of the pictures, both of which are verified and protected, I could I now feel safer just deleting my, my SD cards a lot sooner. 
And so once once you make your piece with that, it's it's really easy to just grab the SD card after a shoot, copy everything on it on your destination drive, and then you know that you can just delete that and start over. So to me, it's actually had a very a very positive impact in the way that I do my, uh, my in the way that I work, basically. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that the, the original recording medium isn't meant as a storage medium. It's an intermediate. Exactly. Hard drives are really, really reliable. A lot more reliable than SD cards or compact flash cards. Right. That's an excellent point. Yeah, but it's it's hard to break it's hard to break habits, right? And I think that's what it comes down to is, um, you know, I'm, I was the same as Alvaro in in terms of how I was dealing with, uh, especially with photos. Uh, you know, keep them on the card until you have to delete it because, you know, it's just an extra safety net. But now that the safety net is built into the offloading tool, I no longer have that. And it, it's excellent, but it does take some getting used to. And I'm, I don't want to come off as critical in what we were talking about earlier, because I actually really admire you guys for having such a focused vision and for being willing to um, stick to it in the face of uh, a whole bunch of user requests that you must be getting, because again, if you're if you're seeing a bunch of strange use cases, then I can only imagine what kinds of things people want you to add to hedge. And uh, the fact that you guys have such a clear vision for what you'd like it to do is encouraging, because it means that, um, like you were saying, anything that gets added to the app is a thoughtful addition. It's something that's that's been heavily considered. Um, and it's been developed patiently and not just sort of added in because people asked for it and it was this quick little um, addition. So that that to me as a user and as a user in a professional context is reassuring. Like that's the kind of thing that builds trust in an app for me. Exactly. And I think one of the most important aspects of, a, of an app that's going to be used for professional purposes like Hedge is not only that the feature set has to be very, very robust but it's also a matter of how the app behaves within the larger OS ecosystem. And I think Hedge is one of the very few apps that I would consider an excellent OS X citizen. And you mentioned before the Apple script support, which, which is a great example of this. But not only that, it's, it, it really feels like an app that, that was built to work and look and behave uh, exactly like an OS X app should. So I'm curious about um, how, how aware of that or, and how important was that to you, Paul, as you guys were designing the app? Very, very, very important. <laughs> um, we work with a lot of offloaders before even deciding that we wanted to build our own. And most of them are cross-platform or are um, HTML interfaces on top of existing methods and um, our team of developers is pretty hardcore OSX, and we all agreed that we oh, Apple has built OSX in a really, really nice way. And there's there's a lot that the system offers if you want to take advantage of it. And so we decided to go the Apple way uh, because it would offer more stability and more options uh, for improvement, more place for improvement. Right. And that's exactly what we did with the interface. And that's also why we were able to innovate on the copy process. It, that isn't just, just isn't possible if you build a cross-platform app, then you won't be able to, to get such a speed leap that we did with the 1.3 version. Yeah, I completely agree. 
And just speaking of of cross platform, do you guys have any interest in expanding beyond the um, beyond the Mac? I mean, I, I obviously this this makes sense, and the reason that you've uh, built it this way um, makes a whole lot of sense for us Mac users. But um, I'm just like, has there been demand from the Windows user base, for instance, um, for a similar tool? Because I imagine that um, they have similar. Um, you know, needs if they're, if they're uh, offloading footage. And I'm not quite sure that they have um, an alternative to hedge on their end of the pond. Uh, we get a lot of requests for that. Um, but most of them are from the post-production world where Macs are considered very expensive and people are migrating to PCs uh, right. with Premiere or Avid. And right, yeah. We haven't heard, we haven't got that much demand from the photography world though. Although... I can only imagine the Lightroom community must be huge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we're not Windows developers. So if we're going to do it, um, then we need to hire Windows developers. And that's quite a, quite expensive for us. So we have been thinking about it to, to translating our design language to Windows. Uh, we don't have the funds for it yet, but we might do something like a Kickstarter. To, to see if there's enough interest for enough demand. Right. Yeah. And and of course, it's not just the initial build process. You also have to keep people to be able to support it after the fact. So, you know, it's it's definitely a huge process. I was just interested in whether or not there's demand for it, you know, because, um, and that actually leads me to, um, you, were, you were talking about demand, you know, from post-production houses versus photographers. Do you have a sense of the distribution of users? Like, is it mostly... Um, video folks that are using Hedge? Is it mostly photographers? Like, how does how does the user base look from your um, perspective? It's exactly 50-50. Really? Huh, cool. Yeah, it's prices. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was thinking it would be more extreme, but uh, that's a good sign. I mean, it means that it, it adapts to more than just one kind of workflow. Yeah, it does. And we see a lot of photographers that do video as well and vice versa. Yeah, and we, we build Hedge with video in mind, and along the way, people started telling us, "Hey, this might be a great tool for photographers as well." And but we hadn't thought of that much demand from photography, and that's that's why we're looking into Windows development as well. But right. I'm really not sure when we're going to do that. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, I have another question, and kind of building a little bit on that. Let's talk about pricing for for a, for a moment, because. Uh, Hedge is the rare app that moved. It, it was born as a sub, as a subscription uh, paid model, and then it transitioned to a standalone purchase model. And that's kind of against the current trend that we're seeing in most professional uh, apps that are going to a subscription a subscription model like Lightroom and Photoshop and pretty much every Adobe app. So that's that's really interesting to me, and uh, I'm kind of curious as to why the change <laughs> because nobody bought it <laughs> no but n- not exactly why but what is it about hedge that makes more sense as a standalone purchase as opposed to as a as a sub- subscription app uh, it was just a business decision um right we think and in light of uh, the apple decision to open up subscriptions to all apps um, we think that subscription models are the only way to support sustainable development of apps that said it's from a developer's point of view and that's not per se the right thing for a for a consumer 
Uh, right. And I think there's a big discrepancy between how much people think software is worth and how much work there is needed to keep software running. Definitely. And how much time and money that costs. Um, Hedge is considered sometimes an expensive app by people. Um, to tell you, Hedge couldn't even be developed without investors. That much money, it's, it's, it's costed to build. It's, it's, let's say it's, it's very expensive to build a Mac-only development shop with a few programmers and a UX designer and uh, the business part of it. And so I think in the future, subscriptions are really inevitable to keep uh, a healthy a healthy business running. But what do you think has to what do you think has to change, right? Because right now there's still a lot of resistance to subscription models from the user side of things, which makes sense. Um, so is it just a matter of them getting used to it? Or do you think there's like a, an education gap where they don't really understand why subscriptions are better for developers? Like there, I know I've spoken to some um, of just friends, basically normal, less geeky people who uh, struggle a little bit with, um, with, the idea behind app pricing in general, and they don't, they don't quite grasp, um, like, you know, they're the kinds of people who will tell you that a $5 app is expensive. And it's, it's like, there, there's clearly a disconnect there between, um, the effort that went into building it and, and what they understand of it. But uh, like as a developer, like you, you must confront this a lot. And you said, unfortunately, that when you had the subscription model, people just weren't, um, weren't jumping on board. So like what has to change before you could consider, um, switching back to what is clearly a more sustainable, um, system for you guys? We're not sure. Um, we are still thinking hard about it. What is needed to do a subscription? What software runs, uh, works with a subscription? Yeah. And we think the current thing for subscriptions to work is that it's visible to a customer that it's it costs money to keep software running. Right. Right. Um, so things like Spotify work because you need a server, you need an online component. That works. That's pretty tangible in a way. Yep. Yeah. And I think a download of an app that just works, you don't need to be online, uh, just doesn't make the mental uh, coupling between um, that it's still going to take cost money to keep that app running in the long run. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big problem. And nobody seems to to be able to solve it yet, or at least... In, in the public perception of things, you ship an app and that's its own entity. And it's like, that's done, right? Like I pay you once and that's done. You, why are, why do you keep asking me for, for money? What are you doing to justify the extra money? And unfortunately, it's a matter of people just not understanding how how development works, really. But that's, uh, I'm not sure how you can, how we can, it's going to take a huge concerted effort, not only from Apple, but from everybody to change that that mindset, and um, the, I think the fundamental disconnect here is that people don't get that what is best for developers is ultimately also what is best for users. Yeah, because users don't get apps if developers can't make them. Yeah, it seems like a very very simple thing to say, but 
that's the problem we have that it's that there's a disconnect there and it's like users are in conflict with developers when in fact their interests should be aligned i think there's a it's a transparency problem in the end yeah um, if you if i'd ask you 10 bucks every month then at some point you're going to think why am i paying paul 10 bucks a month for well, for his new car maybe or something like that um i think a lot of companies and we'd like to do that as well uh, could become a lot more transparent in sharing um, why is this the price point of an app where's the money going how much profit is there being made and that that could raise more awareness about the cost of developing software right i think there's a um uh I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, there's a developer who I really admire. He makes a, an app for freelancers called Cushion. Um, and I think his name is Johnny Hallman. But in any event, he was one of the first developers that I saw doing this. So on the on the Cushion website, he's actually got two blogs, one of which is a more traditional, you know, user-facing one. But one of them is him journaling the process of building and maintaining the app. And he's got a very like he's got a dedicated page that outlines all of his ongoing costs and things like that. And I don't know his numbers or anything like that, but my impression is that that level of transparency and honesty makes it a lot easier for his potential customers to understand why there's a subscription involved in uh, in in running that service. And like you were saying, Paul, I think that's ultimately the future is is a little bit of extra transparency to make it easier for the end user to understand what that money is going to and why it's required on an ongoing basis, even for an app that, like you said, does not rely on server architectures or ongoing licensing renewals and things like that, that, that make it sort of uh, obvious, I guess, why there would be, um, you know, a, a recurring revenue stream needed. Um, and, and hopefully we're seeing more of this. I mean, I, I think you guys have probably seen the news about um, about Sketch, which is a very, very good design tool that I use all the time. And they announced that as of version four, they'll be um, transitioning to a pricing model that's not quite, they're not calling it a subscription. It's basically like you pay us a hundred bucks each year that you want to keep receiving updates. So if you stop paying, you still keep the license that you've got. It works as, you know, it, there's no, uh, it's not like the Adobe subscription where you lose access to something. Uh, so your app keeps working, but you don't get updates unless you continue paying. And to me, that's a very good system. Like that's something that I'm more than happy to participate in because it means that if I stop using uh, the app as actively, I can stop paying for the updates. And then I just keep the existing copy that I have that you know can open all the files that I've made, but I don't have to worry about the ongoing cost just so that I retain access to those files. Um, and meanwhile, the developer is equipped to keep building the app in a sustainable way. Right. And that's also very easy to explain to people. And, and I think people get it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if you guys would consider that, but for, for Hedge especially, I think that's not a bad model. I mean, that's something that I would certainly be willing to pay a yearly fee for, um, again, just to keep getting the updates, regardless of what they are. Yeah, we are considering it. Yeah. Um, we moved to the regular license fee just after launch, and uh, we're still happy with that. And I think we could do a transition just like Sketch and Framer did as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're all Dutch companies, by the way. <laughs> They're all right <laughs> around the corner. Um, 
I think that's, that model is a good substitute because it raises more awareness of the, the running costs of software, especially with yearly OSX updates. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, I don't feel like that's the license to rule them all. There must be a better way right? somewhere. And I think it's what we try to do with our subscriptions is make it extremely easy to cancel or pause your subscription. Right. Um, we aimed to hatch originally at video professionals. So our license model was uh, based on gigs, on jobs. So if you have a gig, you activate Hedge for a month. Uh, it's going to cost you 10 bucks or 25 bucks. You keep it running. Uh, if you've got a longer jobs, uh, you cancel it when you're done. And I think that's more a, a cost per usage system is a, is a more reliable way of developing software. In the end, but well, just like I said, there's no one license system to rule them all yet. Yeah, yeah, and that's ultimately the problem: is that what's going to make sense for one particular production house is not going to make sense for another, um, or or just as a user preference thing, they'll say, "Oh, well, yes, financially it, it makes sense to have it on a per gig basis, but I don't want the hassle of having to reactivate licenses per gig or something like that." Even though it's a simple process, it's just that that added step that. Um, wouldn't be necessary with uh, with Finder in in your case. I mean, that's the the struggle. So I yeah I I think pricing is a really difficult thing right now for developers, regardless of what kind of app. Um, but I like I mean again I, I think the problem here is that people like Alvaro and I are the kinds of customers that are willing to pay for development because we understand a little bit more and appreciate a little bit more what goes into building the apps that we love and use every day. But um, we're not the problem in the sense that um, the, the end user is is more of the uh, the struggle because that's where you get the volume of your uh, of your licenses. So that's yeah, that's definitely a struggle. But I, I think you guys are are uh, right now. Obviously, the the price point I think is very comfortable. Um, and and hopefully you you come up with a way to also transform that into a sustainable thing so that you can build out these um, either new features or or different apps or things like that. I mean, we would love to see Hedge grow into uh, an ecosystem of of utilities. Right, that'd be awesome. And Paul, you mentioned something that I think is very important and doesn't get all the attention that I think it deserves, which is that. Uh, with Apple now shipping yearly updates to both OS X and iOS, and possibly even tvOS as well, uh, the added pressure that that puts on developers to keep their apps working on the latest version of the OS is incredibly, incredibly substantial. Like it's not, it's not, it's nothing to sneeze at. So that that's something that I don't know why it doesn't doesn't get mentioned a whole lot. Like people perceive yearly OS updates are great, and they are, but they have some trade-offs and they have some consequences that affects users and developers, and it's not always in a positive way. So that's something that I would like to be uh, more more out there, you know, more present in the discussion. Yeah, well, we've been thinking about doing OS, OS tied releases. We're, we're having a lot of ideas about pricing and license types. And one of the ideas we had is uh, a hedge for Yosemite, a hedge for El Capitan, a hedge for whatever comes next. Right. And 
that could be just a very small update price, but that makes it something sus- sustainable. And even uh, five or 10 bucks per user um, could cover for uh, the amount of work that is needed to keep it running. Because Apple, Apple does great stuff, but they're also great in changing stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes without much warning. Yeah. So an OS update could take a day's work, but it could be two months of full-time work. Uh, to give you an example, Sony just released uh, the update for El Capitan this week, and so did Codex. Wow. <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't think they they've worked on it for a year minus a month, but there there's a reason it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Right. And and I like yearly updates, but I don't think. Uh, it, it has a pretty hefty price tag for the developers. Exactly. So, Paul, just to bring it back to the product a little bit, I mean, you guys are are developing this um, at a really remarkable pace. I mean, uh, you know, I've been looking at the updates coming in, and uh, the most recent one um, was, uh, like, <laughs> unbelievable. So you you developed a technology that you are calling Fastlane, um, which is basically helping out with the speed of the transfers. And uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that technology and how you got to it and, and what it actually means for, um, for Hedge and for the workflow. Yeah, I think I can elaborate on it. Um, we were always quite bummed that verification of files took about two, three times as long as just copying them with Finder. So there was a huge speed gap there. Right. And we found out that the Finder isn't really meant to be copying files with that are larger than, let's say, 100 MBs, but especially not 10 gigs for like 4K video files you get nowadays. Right. Um, so we got in touch with Apple, uh, got some answers, and we deduced from a few of those answers a method um, that is a lot deeper into the system code than uh, a regular process that all apps use. Okay. So, so we went really low level into how the machine handles uh, transfers, and and we adapted on that, and we optimized for larger file sizes, and then we ran some benchmarks, and it turned out the new way of handling data worked for smaller files too. Nice, nice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent surprise. This kind, the kind yeah. of discovery that you that you like to make, right? Yeah, yeah, we were pretty surprised by it, but we, uh, yeah. It works, so we're pretty happy with it. And the great thing that the regular process is copying a file, uh, then verifying the source, then verifying the destination, and that's a sequential process. And we found a way of doing that in a parallel process. So that speeds up both things. And we found a way to uh, do parallel transfers as well. So it's it's a some myth that Doing one transfer uh, at a time is faster than doing multiple at a time. Right. If you're using Hatch, that is. <laughs> and is that not the case? Because that's what I thought. That's that's definitely not the case. No. no. Oh, cool. Definitely not. You can, if you're doing stuff without verification, that is the case. Yes. But if you're verifying in the meantime. Right. Um, we ran a benchmark that's uh, two sources to three backups. Yeah. With verification. And if you run them all at the same time. Um, you're running at the maximum bus speed and it saves you about 60% of time spent. Nice. Wow. Right, because in theory, while the machine is verifying the, the data, it could also be copying some other data Yeah. and kind of like interlace those, right? Yeah, that's what it's doing. And you can multiplex that. 
cool. It makes sense. Yeah. So is there any downside to it? Because I mean, that, that sounds like a remarkable um, step forward in just moving files in general. So like, what, what was the struggle? Like that sounds like a perfect solution. Uh, it costs money. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, there's no, there's no technical downsides. Not at all. No, but I guess the question, I guess an interesting question would be why isn't Apple doing this, you know, with Finder? Yeah. Uh, Apple is in a way. When you're a developer, you have access to parts of the system on different levels. Right. And some levels are really high and some levels are really low. And uh, the higher level, the easier it is to implement something. And OS X has, uh, has this method called copy file. And that's really high level uh, version of copying stuff. And all apps seem to be using copy file because it's easy and the copy file system returns feedback and you can act on that and finder uses a different system that we learned from apple uh, one you don't have access to oh. right and that's why you can't get hashes out of it that's the thing okay so you need to that's what apple says if you want to do checksums you got to build your own routine um, okay so what we did is we use a, f- a different way of copying we build our own copy engine literally uh, and our own verification routine. All right. So you basically went, um, you, you developed your own way around this limitation of what Apple gives you access to. Yeah. Amazing. Are you concerned that, that you're using any tools or techniques that might be banned by Apple on a future? Oh, no, no. Because this is really, this is the way computers work. Well, it sounds to me like you're, you've just gone ahead and done the legwork. Like you, you're not hacking around what Apple intends you to do. It's just other people don't do it because it's difficult and it requires um, thinking. It's hard work. Yeah. yeah. A lot of thinking, yeah. <laughs> a lot of testing, a lot of work, money. Yeah. Are there any sandboxing concerns? Uh, yeah. Uh, you can't do this in a sandbox. That's why we're not in the App Store. Right. Apple asks us to be, to be in the App Store. And are you maybe a little bit worried that the sandboxing might become like mandatory at some point in the future? I don't think so, because the sandboxing is really aimed at uh, consumers. And if Apple would make that move, they would they would kill their whole platform for professional use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, unless they drastically change the way it works. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that would be a smart move on their part. Uh, that would kill the sandbox. Uh, well, all I know is that um, you know, I mean, we've been we've been running the beta, so we've had access to this for a little while. Um, it's amazing, like just in practice, um, seeing how quick these transfers are, and seeing how um, how much more comfortable I feel moving around tremendous quantities of photos or video footage, um, and knowing that it's being verified while in transfer is uh, I don't it's it's uh, the peace of mind itself is worth the license cost for me yeah um so it's it's pretty remarkable what you guys have accomplished um and the best part is that um very recently um by the time that you guys are listening to this uh, candid audience um there is now a free trial so you can actually um give this a try so paul how does how does the trial actually work um there's a free version of hatch uh, that has all the safety features on board, so you don't have to use the finder at all. Right. And if you sign up for our newsletter, you'll get a temporary week-long license for Hatch in your mailbox. That's it. And if you like it, then you could go to hatchformac.com slash candidfm 
and you'll get an extra discount. Nice. Well, there you go, folks. <laughs> so we obviously are are now hedge users, and this is something that uh, um, that that we hardly recommend. But again, because there's a free trial, you can give it a shot, see if you like it. And uh, by all means, let us know. And also let us know if you find that you have other sort of ideas for what Hedge could do and, and workflow things. I mean, we've talked about a few of the ones that we ran into, but I think it would be great feedback for Paul if uh, if you let him know or you let us know um, just sort of what your impressions are, because that's how the app gets better. Yeah, definitely. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It was really, really fascinating to hear a little bit more in depth how Hedge works and all of the thought that goes into building such a seemingly simple app, but one that actually has a tremendous amount of complexity under the hood. Um, We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. Right. Every now and then you come across an app that suddenly becomes an essential part of your your workflow. And that's what's happened with Hedge for me personally. So thanks a lot for for putting the the hard work into to create the app and congratulations on the 1.3 update because you guys really knocked it out of the park. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, so remember guys, you can get a free week-long trial of Hedge at their website and if you decide to purchase, you can go to hedgeformac.com/candidfm and right there at the top of the page, you'll get a 20% discount that is exclusive to Candid listeners. Uh, that way you'll be supporting this great Mac app and you'll also be supporting the show. So let's go on there and show them some love. So that's it on our end. That's all we have for this week's episode. Thanks again to Paul for joining us today and see you guys in the next one. <laughs>